Well, again, good morning. This morning, we are continuing uh, on in our series in the book of Romans. If you're new with us this morning, we've been working our way through this amazing letter. And so if you want to grab a Bible and open it up to chapter 8, there should be one in the seat back near you if you want to grab one or open up on your phone. Romans chapter 8, those verses we just heard, which really could probably just stand on their own. Uh, So amazing, so powerful, and so encouraging. And as we, as we start this morning, as you're turning there, uh, I wanted to uh, just share with you a story, maybe a story that you're familiar with. Uh, it's uh, a moment in the life of a man named Horatio Gates Spafford. Uh, and if you're familiar with this story, you know that, uh, that he lived in the 19th century, he was a faithful follower of Jesus. He and his family lived in Chicago. Uh, and at one point, he and his family decided they were going to go to England on a, a family trip. They're going to cross through a transatlantic uh, um, take a ship across the, the ocean. And as his family was preparing to go, something came up in his work, and he had to remain behind. And so he sent his wife and his four daughters, all under the age of 11, uh, on to England without him, and then he was going to come later. And on November 22nd, while crossing the Atlantic, their ship was struck by another ship, and it sank in less than 12 minutes. 260 people died including all four of Spafford's daughters. All four of them drowned. Remarkably, Anna, his wife, survived, and she sent uh, what became a famous telegram now back to her husband that included the words, saved alone. She alone had survived. He immediately um, booked passage across to be with her, and as he was sailing across on his voyage, the captain of the ship that he was on called him to um, the bridge of the vessel, and as he laid out his charts in front of him, he explained that as best he could tell, this was the, spa- this was the place as they were crossing the Atlantic where the ship had sank and where his daughters had died. And the story goes that Horatio Spafford then returned to his cabin and began to pen the words of this now famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I've sung that hymn dozens if not hundreds of times. For the longest time I didn't know anything about Horatio Spafford and the story behind it. But knowing that this was a man whose heart was being torn apart as he wrote these words of praise and thanksgiving, it's remarkable to me that he could say this in this moment. How in the world does a man who just lost four daughters say, it is well? It is well with my soul. I thought of this as I read Paul's words here in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul would put it more succinctly, I rejoice in my sufferings. Not cope with my sufferings, 
Not survive my sufferings, but rejoice, he says. Rejoice in my sufferings. It is well. It is well with my soul. Isn't that a sign of complete insanity to think that in a moment like that? I'm sure many would have looked at Horatio Spafford, read that hymn in that moment, and thought, you are in total denial. You're delusional. It would be delusional. It would be insane for Paul, for Horatio Spafford, and for us, unless, unless there truly is something, something beyond the suffering that is so great, so unimaginably good, and so full of meaning and hope, something real and true and unchanging that is, in a sense, the North Star to our entire lives. Something we can set before us as truth. And for Paul, that thing was God's glory. It was God's glory. And so what I want to do this morning is followers of Jesus uh, who are seeking to have hope and peace and, and joy in the face of suffering, because we all face suffering, I want us to, to be able to see and be captivated by the glory of God in our lives. Because that's the only way, I think, with Paul that we can say uh, these sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory. That we can say with Horatio Spafford, it is well. It is well with my soul. And so that's what Paul wants for us this morning, what the Lord wants for us. And so, again, if you want to pull up Romans chapter 8, and what I want to do is I just want to highlight four things briefly that he teaches us about suffering and joy. If you had to caption this whole passage, if you had to detect a theme, the theme is suffering and glory. It's suffering and glory. And so I want to look at suffering and glory together this morning. And the, the first thing I just want to highlight is what Paul does at the beginning here is he acknowledges and encourages us to expect suffering as a part of life. That's where he begins. Paul says that the creation suffers, and he says that people suffer. Look what he says in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What is Paul talking about? What's he describing here with, crea with creation? What he's going back to is Genesis, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 in particular. Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? The fall. So Adam sinned, right? And it, the thing is, it didn't just affect humanity. It actually affected creation. It affected the world that God had made the creator himself had made. And Genesis 3.17 highlights different ways this was true. Genesis 3.17, the ground was cursed because of Adam and his sin. It says in verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Verse 19, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what Paul is summing up. All of this from Genesis chapter 3, he's summing up with the word futility. Your, your translation makes frustration. This emptiness, this, this disorder, this brokenness in creation. Things are not as they're supposed to be in the world. The natural order is subject to disorder and destruction and decay. 
And so that's what this, this groaning is about. Creation is groaning to be liberated from its suffering. And so he says creation is suffering. And then he also says we are suffering. Humanity is suffering. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Paul says in our suffering, we groan. We groan. I don't know the last time you groaned. When was the last time you gave a good groan, right? Maybe it was in traffic on the way here. You groaned. Maybe it was getting out of bed. I found my, you know, I'm 47. I'm like, why am I groaning? For no reason, just getting out of bed. Groaning, right? We groan. We groan over all kinds of things in our life. We groan over politics. We groan over corruption. We groan over injustice. Maybe you're groaning over your finances right now. Maybe you're groaning over having to do the dishes one more time. We groan over all kinds of things. In the church, we groan. We groan over scandals in the church, false teachings, false gospels, gossip, church divisions. Our hearts groan in a different way over the persecution of the global church, over global tragedies, over Christ misrepresented and Christ denied even in his church. And we groan personally. We groan over our own imperfections and our failures. We, we groan over our pain and our loss, over sickness and death. We groan over our sin. And so we, we groan. As Christians, we ought to groan. Because we live in a fallen world. To quote Wesley from The Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says different is selling you something. The answer is that suffering is a real part of our life. And I love how Paul begins there. He doesn't start with any measure of denial. He doesn't kind of paper over the fact that suffering is real. This is real suffering and it's inescapable. And so we begin there, acknowledging and expecting suffering as a part of life. But then he goes on and he says, suffering here in this life can actually point us to something beyond this life. When Paul says the creation itself will be set free, and again, that we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body, what he's saying is, yes, life is pain, but there's hope beyond the pain. There is hope beyond the pain. There's adoption and there's redemption. There's those two things. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But, but suffice to say, new identities and new bodies. That's what we have before us. That's our hope. That's the glory. That's where we're headed. Free from sin. Free from death. God holds out that hope beyond the suffering. Now, I've never run a marathon. Okay? I've never run a half marathon. I've never run a 10K. All right. I've done a 5K. Y'all know that. I've done a 5K. But I hear, I hear from people that do run marathons that running a marathon is brutal. It is brutal. Even if you love running marathons, running a marathon is painful. But part of what makes it worth it, you could say, is the joy of running. But also what makes it worth it is you know there's a finish line, right? People are racing for the finish line. They want to get that that finish line, we cross it, it makes it worth it, knowing that that's there. It gives you this sense of, of kind of perseverance and hope and confidence and strength, knowing that you are actually running to something, not just aimlessly running. But imagine if you're running a marathon, there's no, there's no finish line. Imagine if you're just running, no end, no goal. 
Nothing that made the pain and the suffering worth it. Running a marathon would be hell, right? Pain for nothing. Purposeless, meaningless. In John 14, 1 through 2, Jesus says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus gives us a finish line. He gives us a finish line and it makes running the race worth it. We get to be with him, with our Father for eternity. That finish line is glory. It is heaven. It is eternal life together in the presence of God. Jesus was pointing his disciples to the greatest longing of their hearts perfect, everlasting fellowship with God so that they could endure the suffering he knew was coming. And so when we fix our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 encourages us, and the amazing eternity that we get to spend with God that he's promised to us, it becomes this very real backdrop, always present in the background of our lives, in particular in the background of our sufferings. We can see our pain and our suffering now in the light of an eternal future, an eternal glory, something beyond the moment. That's how Paul can call our sufferings light and momentary troubles. How do you say that about losing four children? The only way you can say that is in light of eternity with God to his glory. The only way you can say that It's if you have that kind of perspective. You can say, it is well with my soul. And it's not dismissive of the pain. And it's not ignoring the suffering. It's putting things in perspective. It's putting things in perspective. Our misery may feel like it will never end in our pain and our suffering, in our deepest moments of darkness. But the gospel says it will end. It it offers us hope for eternal glory. And in comparison to our present, our eternal future, is beautiful and captivating, and it helps us navigate the suffering is momentary. Number three, God uses our suffering to make us more like Christ. So our, our, our suffering, it, it has a purpose. It points us to something beyond this life, to the finish line, but it also helps us in this life become more like Christ. It's not just about the future. It's also about this present moment. The truth is life is marked by suffering and pain, whether you have Jesus or not. The difference is, if you have Christ, your pain has redemptive purpose. Your pain has redemptive purpose. That's why for Paul, suffering is the cause for celebration. Think about that. Paul says suffering is cause for rejoicing. He said that in Romans chapter 5. It's cause to rejoice not because suffering is good we don't rejoice in the actual suffering but because of what it can produce in the hands of a loving god even what was meant for evil can be used for good and create patience and character and hope and so the purpose of preserving through pain is that at the end of all things we might be glorified glorified with him verse 17 and conformed into the likeness of his son verse 29 and his commentary on romans Michael Byrd uh, describes our ultimate aim in life in terms of what he calls our Christification, 
I love that. I've never heard that term before. It's, it's our Christification, that we are becoming more and more and more and more like Christ. Every day of our lives, we have the opportunity for Christification to be taking place. The image of God that was lost in Adam revealed in Christ and shared by us. Verse 23 says that we get to share in that in two specific ways. This is where we come back to adoption and the redemption of our bodies. In verse 16 and 17, Paul says, if you go back, he says, In Christ we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering in this life is part of our adoption process, is what he says. It's part of the process that God is using. It's the pains we go through as heirs of God in a world set against God. But through that, we persevere and we become these adopted children that will ultimately inherit, get this, God. He says we as children will inherit God himself. We get God. So one day, so I read the statistic the other day. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, I think, said this, one out of every one person will die, right? <laughs> so we're all, we're all going to die, okay? Newsflash, we're all going to die. And when you do, the only thing, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you will possess in eternity, you know what it is? It's God. It's God. He is our precious possession. He is our inheritance, Everything else left behind, we will claim our inheritance. It's God himself. And so as we face suffering, we do so knowing that as beloved children, we will one day have him. And you know what happens when you inherit God? You get all that's God's. What's God's? Everything. That's why God is the greatest inheritance any human being could ever have. And that's why this promise is so amazing. Not only that, We'll receive this inheritance, this adoption as sons, the sonship. That's what that means. We get to receive the sonship of God. We also get new bodies. Who wants a new body? <laughs> Praise God. Okay. We, some of us don't need a body. I need a new body. Okay. <laughs> I do. Uh, my kids keep telling me I do. Um, we won't just be uh, spirits floating around in heaven. There's this idea out there, and it's not Christian. That is a totally pagan concept. It is not from Scripture. We get bodies. When we are raised from the dead in Christ, we get bodies, bodies that will never hurt, never get sick, bodies that will never go weak, perfect bodies, the six-pack I've always wanted. I'm going to get it, right? We will be beautiful, not because of some artificial, you know, magazine cover, beauty pageant standard. I don't mean that kind. We will be beautiful in Christ, when we look at each other, we'll be amazed by each other because we will see each other in Christ, perfect, perfect bodies. So we get sonship adopted. We get perfect, new, redeemed bodies in Christ. We will share all of this, all of this together. And so here's another way to think about how this works in the course of this life leading to that great glory, to that reality. So in a way, understanding suffering is about letting Jesus in this life, letting that vision of life in Jesus become bigger and bigger and bigger and crowding out everything else so that it consumes us. So think about if you were taking a journey to the sun, right? The journey to the sun, it begins as what? This bright dot in the distance. But the closer you get, that sun gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that once you got close enough to it, it would actually do what? consume you. You become one with the sun. 
The sun is in you and you are in the sun, right? That's what would happen. That's, that's, the, that's what life in Christ is meant to be like. In a similar way, we draw nearer to Jesus and what happens is in our vision, our spiritual vision, he becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know what becomes smaller and smaller and smaller? Our suffering. When Jesus becomes huge to us and his glory becomes captivating to us, it doesn't mean suffering doesn't happen. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it's wrong, not wrong. It means it takes up less and less space in our vision because we see Christ. We are overwhelmed with Jesus. And one day Jesus is going to draw us into himself and we will be in him and he will be in us. That's heaven. That's glory. So the bigger Christ becomes to us and in us, the smaller our sufferings become to us. They're real, but Jesus becomes greater and greater and greater, even in our pain, even in our pain. Number four, the Holy Spirit helps us experience God's glory in our suffering. So the Holy Spirit is the key part here. We, we talked about this before. The Holy Spirit is all over this chapter. 21 times the Spirit is mentioned again and again and again. The Holy Spirit actually helps us experience, live in the God given glory that we have in Christ, even in the midst of our suffering. Paul here is not saying that the way through suffering is to grin and bear it because we know heaven's out there. He's not saying that. He is not saying that we grin and bear it, nor is he saying that we suffer in some means to earn our place in God's heavenly kingdom or glory. He is not saying that. He is saying that suffering in Christ helps us make sense in a world where we have Christ and yet we still suffer. That's what he's trying to get at. That's because we live in what theologians have called the already and the not yet. That's where we live. If you're not familiar with that, it's, it's this understanding that Jesus came and he's going to come again, and we live in between. We live between the comings of Jesus, when salvation has been inaugurated but not consummated. Another way to think about it is where the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come fully. That's where we live. And so that's why Paul says in verse 15, uh, you've received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom you cry, Abba, Father, you are sons and daughters of the king. You can cry out to him. You can come to him. He loves you. He is your daddy. That is true. And yet, what does he say in verse 23? We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Paul has no short-term memory. We have it. How, why are we waiting eagerly for it? It's because it's already, and it's not yet. It's both. It's both. We have salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and yet... We await the fullness of life in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of this new creation, and yet we long for more because there is more. There's more life in God. There's more to come. And so that's why we groan. That's part of our groaning. It's not just a groaning because of what we're experiencing here. It's groaning for what we long for in Christ. We groan for God for his glory, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our groaning. This is what's amazing. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God. That's what the Spirit does for us. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. In times of suffering, I, I will tell you, when, when I walk down the halls of hospitals on the way to see people in our congregation, people that I've loved. You know what I'm wondering? I, I know scripture. I know the promises of God. I am asking, Lord, what do I say? I don't know what to say. Lord, I don't know. I know you love them. I know the resurrection offers hope beyond death. 
I know you are the healing God, but what do I say, Lord? I don't know what to say. And the Holy Spirit helps us. He helps us know exactly what to say and what not to say. I don't know if you've ever wanted to pray. You've ever felt this need to pray, but you don't know what to pray. We believe in prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. And sometimes our words fail us. Our words fail us, particularly in moments of great tragedy and suffering. And I just want to say, that's okay. In fact, it's better than okay. Because what it does is it creates room for the Holy Spirit to speak. We don't have to have the right words all the time. Paul says in those moments when you want to throw up your hands and say, I give up, maybe it's financial ruin, maybe it's divorce, terminal diagnosis, loss of a child. It could be terrible, terrible suffering. And in that suffering, here is the promise you can hold on to. The Spirit himself is praying for you before Christ, before the heavenly throne. The Spirit of God is crying out with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit helps us pray helps us to trust in and honor God even when we don't know how. Isn't that liberating? Think of it this way. When we start thinking about the moments in our life when we don't know what to say or we struggle what to feel, we feel weak, you know, my inclination is to see that as evidence of God's absence or, or my distance from God. I can't feel you. I can't see you. I don't know what to do. God, where are you? Are you there? Do you care? All these things. What if instead of that, we took Paul's promise and we said, actually, what that means is in this very moment, the Spirit is praying for me. The Holy Spirit is interceding for me. I've experienced this in my walk with the Lord. Sometimes it's just emotion. Sometimes it's just weeping before the Lord. I don't have words. Sometimes it's waiting in stillness and letting go of your agenda and saying, God, I don't hear a thing, but I'm going to sit here and wait on you. I don't feel you, but I trust you are there. It might be a prayer language. It may be praying in tongues. It might be literally groaning before the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of the Spirit. God at work. There been moments in my life and in yours, moments of great loss and pain, groaning and crying is all there is to do. And that's the Holy Spirit helping us in those moments. We need the Spirit in our suffering. Navigating our suffering demands more than thinking rightly and convincing ourselves of great truths. Our faith does not depend on our knowing and understanding circumstances in life, but knowing and trusting the creator and sustainer of life. To say it is well with my soul is ultimately a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you can say that, really. It's a gift received by faith. And so this whole last part of the chapter in Romans chapter 8, I want you to think of these words as gifts because that's what they are. The Holy Spirit helps us believe that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The Holy Spirit helps us believe that if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. The Holy Spirit helps us believe nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. The Holy Spirit helps us believe that in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That nothing, nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so just in closing, I just want to encourage you, read over 
Romans chapter 8. Let the Holy Spirit minister to you and encourage you. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you've been through, what suffering you faced in the past or you may be facing now or you may be facing tomorrow. But know that God's glory is before you in Christ. In these moments, we must remember the hope of glory. There is hope beyond this broken world. There is hope beyond my circumstances, my pain, and my loss. In time, as you trust him, God can and will heal you. And ultimately, that will come when we come into Christ in the fullness of time for eternity into his glory. Praise be to God. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that, Lord, even in a life full of suffering and pain and loss, Lord, even in a world where we don't even know what to pray, God, you are with us and you are for us and you hold out your glory before us. Lord, help us to press on towards the prize. Help us not to give up running the race. Lord, help us to see you as the finish line and the breath in our lungs. Lord, to see you as the destination and the one who propels us there. Lord, help us to see Christ in all his glory and all his beauty. Lord Jesus, we pray you would be lifted up. Lord, I pray that over our church, that this would be a church where Christ is glorified and people are drawn to him. Lord, when we worship, we are worshiping as those who look forward and long and groan for our day in heaven with you. Holy Spirit, would you minister in our midst? Would you minister to those who are suffering? Would you minister to those who feel pain and loss as only you can? Bring your peace and your hope or that we might be able to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen, amen.